Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Dave Walters. In today's episode, we'll be getting an update on IBOR reform, and I'm joined today by Sandra Thompson, Mark Randall and Chris Raftopoulos, who all spoke to us earlier in the year on this very topic. So, uh, Sandra, if I start with you, maybe a multi-stage question here. So what is IBOR reform? Why the change and when is it happening? Thanks, Dave. Well, very high level, eyeball reform is an ongoing process happening in large part of the globe, actually, to replace what are called benchmark interest rates with alternative rates. This is rates like LIBOR, um, things like Euribor, US dollar LIBOR, and also some other rates, perhaps Yonya might be impacted. Why is this happening? Well, this was really a response from regulators in the light of the financial crisis when I think it was realised that perhaps some of these benchmark rates were not as robust and representative as might have been ideal. Um, and when? Well, pretty quickly. It's an ongoing process. It's happening at different speeds in different parts of the world. But ballpark about 2021-22 in most parts of the world. But it is an ongoing process. Um, one particular thing to note is that not all instruments are affected at the same time, even within one country. So you can have a situation where derivatives, for example, that reference LIBOR might move before non-derivatives, things like debt instruments that reference LIBOR. And that's very important when it comes to the accounting, and we'll come back to that. Um, Just one other thing before we move on. We're going to talk through some examples today, and we're going to talk about the context of UK sterling LIBOR moving to SONIA, which is the replacement rate in the UK. Just going to use that as the examples. They apply equally no matter where you are in the world. Excellent. Thank you, Sandra. So uh, probably moving to you, Chris, now. So who is impacted and what is the state of readiness like out there? So I suppose it's important to note that this impacts all industries. So it's not industry specific. You have eyeball uh, referenced in multiple agreements, debt agreements, derivative agreements in particular, but also leases and uh, supplier and customer, customer arrangements. And even if you don't have agreements that reference eyeball particularly, the measurement of some of these arrangements can be affected by eyeball measures. So it is pretty pretty pervasive um, and and could impact lots and lots of entities. So there there are three tiers of readiness. Firstly, the large sophisticated organizations. These organizations tend to understand the issues. Uh, They have teams mobilized to address gaps minimize risks and exploit opportunities. Uh, They tend to be focused on ensuring that they have appropriate fallback arrangements in their legal agreements. And uh, in undertaking any new arrangements are ensuring that they're not creating any basis risk as a result of the actions that they take. And, And importantly, they are looking to take advantage of opportunities as they emerge. The next, the next tier down, in my experience, the largest uh, group, which tends to encompass the large to medium-sized type uh, corporation, typically has a treasurer or equivalent who understands the issues and the need to implement a, a plan, but they tend to have other urgent priorities that they are managing. And their response is broadly that they're waiting for the market to develop They're waiting, for example, for the ISB to give them reliefs if they modify their agreements. And they tend to see 
this issue as broadly a repapering exercise. Whether or not that's true, <laughs> I think I think we need to wait and see in some respects. And then you've got the last group, the smaller type organization, where they haven't allocated responsibility to anybody and where there may be surprises in due course. Okay, so we, we, we've referred to three tiers, and hopefully people won't be in tiers when they, when they look at this. Um, Mark, uh, last time you were here, the ISB had published an exposure draft. What's, what's happened since then? Sure, Dave. Yeah, I guess just to recap, so the ISB have created a two-phase project. Phase one is looking at what they term as pre-replacement issues, so stuff, accounting issues that might arise in anticipate before contracts are actually changed. And then phase two will be looking in due course at when contracts are actually changed. So the exposure draft you refer to, that was our early glimpse of what phase one looked like. To the credit of the ISB, actually, they've moved very quickly. They met in August. They disturbed their summer holidays. So important is as, as eyeball as an issue. Um, and in late September, they came out with the um, finalised phase one amendments, which are focusing on hedge accounting. And what are the headline messages in that? I think the headline message really is, is one of good news that they have listened, they've provided um, temporary reliefs in a number of aspects of hedge accounting that over time could become increasingly perilous with the objective of ensuring that hedges do not get disturbed, do not get broken with the possible consequences of that solely because of um, eyeball reform. And I think they should be largely successful in that we are not expecting hedges to um, to have to be terminated now. What I would say, though, is good news, my headline message, shouldn't be translated as, I don't need to do, to do anything, it's all fine. Um, there will need to be some work to do that we'll come on to. And in particular, hedging effectiveness will still need to be reported through the income statement as and when it arises. So this isn't sort of ISB lets you account for the hedge you wish you had. It's entirely perfect and sort of rose-tinted. It's not quite that good, but it's good. Excellent. And I understand, Mark, that actually sitting within this, there are five different reliefs, which is which is unusual. So, so Sandra, actually, maybe I can turn to you for the first couple of reliefs. Could you take us through them? Yeah. Um, so the first relief we're going to talk about is relief from the highly probable requirement. So what am I talking about here? Um, I'm talking about the case where an entity hedges what we sometimes call a forecast transaction, something that hasn't yet happened. A good example would be a hedge of a forecast debt issuance, and both IFRS 9 and IS 39 require that your forecast transaction is highly probable, and if it's not, then you can't have hedge accounting. Now, if we go back to my example, the forecast debt issuance, let's suppose it's a floating rate debt issuance, so Entity says, I have a highly probable forecast issuance of debt in X year's time, it's LIBOR-based variable rate debt. Fine, highly probable, hedge it with a probably a forward starting interest rate swap, off you go. Of course, as the reforms get closer, you may think, oh, maybe this isn't going to be eyeball debt after all. Maybe this is going to be Sonia debt. Does that mean you no longer have a highly probable forecast transaction, or at least not the one you designated, and have to stop hedge accounting? Well, what the release do is to say you can assume that the interest benchmark you designated at inception doesn't change. So if you designated LIBOR at inception, you assume that LIBOR carries on. And you can see that's very useful. So you won't fail highly probable. Of course, you might fail highly probable for other reasons. So you might decide it's no longer highly probable that you will definitely issue debt. Yeah. Then you would fail. But if it's just due to eyeball reform, you get the relief. So that's the first one. 
Um, the second one is, is related to this. This is about recycling the cash flow hedge reserve. And this is similar to the highly probable test in that if you don't meet certain criteria, you have to, to stop and recycle all your hedging gains and losses immediately. So if we take the example here of an, an entity that's actually hedged floating rate debt, so that's what we call a cash flow hedge. Um, let's suppose that's LIBOR-based interest cash flows, hedged with a LIBOR-based interest rate swap been doing cash flow hedge accounting, putting amounts in OCI and equity and then recycling or putting them into the income statement over time as the, the interest payments are made. What both IFRS 9 and IF 39 say, if, if at any time you're, you haven't got expected cash flows along the lines of what you designated, then you have to immediately recycle. Mm -hmm. So you expected when you first set up this hedge, you were going to have liable cash flows. If there comes a point where you no longer think there are going to be LIBOR cash flows for the whole of the life of the debt, maybe in two, three years' time, they're going to be swapped to be Sonia cash flows, does that mean you have to immediately recycle that bit of the cash flow hedge reserve? The relief is very similar to the first one. Um, the relief says you can just assume that the benchmark that you originally had carries on undisturbed. So if you had an expectation on day one they were LIBOR cash flows, you assume they continue to be LIBOR cash flows. So no immediate recycling. So uh, those two reliefs actually sound incredibly useful. Sort of ignore what's actually happening, but assume assume that the benchmarks stay unchanged. Mark, do the next couple of reliefs uh, prove similarly useful? Yeah, I think they are. Um, so, so, so the next one, number three on our list, um, is around prospective assessment. So this is where... Um, both IS39 and IFRS9 require you to look forward and have a, a decent degree of confidence around the relationship, either because there's an economic relationship to use IFRS9 speak or because you expect the hedge to be highly effective in IS39 terms. And for the similar reason, Sandra was explaining, kind of looking ahead, uncertainty at what point might a rate move and, and what might it move to, that introduces uncertainty and the risk that you... Uh, can no longer look forward with confidence. So, so the relief similarly is saying you base your assessment looking forward on either the cash flows you've got today or the hedge risk you've got today. So that's expressed in LIBOR terms. You fix it in LIBOR, even if you think that might change in the future. And I guess importantly to Sandra's earlier comment around perhaps derivatives moving more quickly than loans and, and debt instruments, that's saying you're locking in and assuming they both stay on LIBOR today forever, even if you think one might move sooner than the other, and you'll have a period during which you've got a mismatch there, which is probably going to be your choppiest waters in terms mm. of the differences you might get between them. So I think it's helpful in that respect. Clearly, if your prospective assessment falls down for other reasons, let's say you're assuming a currency peg and you no longer expect that to be the case, again, it's not a panacea for all known ills of hedge accounting. It's just for the uncertainty. It deals with this specific problem. Exactly. It's giving surgery to go in and cure the ill around LIBOR. So that's the third one. And then the fourth one is sort of a bit of a companion piece because the prospective test you're looking forward and then in IS39, you also have to do a backward-looking retrospective effectiveness test where you've got to fall between this 80 to 125% threshold. And interestingly, the relief here is simply that if you fall outside that 80 to 125% threshold on your retrospective test, you can ignore it 
and you can carry on hedge accounting so long as all the other requirements to, you need to meet hedge accounting are met. In particular, that the prospective one, you are still saying that that's working for you. So on the face of it, it's quite a permissive relief. But to the credit of the standard setters, they kind of ex they explored whether you could somehow look at your retrospective result, split it out, sort of put to the side the nasty bit created by LIBOR and then see, well, ignoring that, how would the retrospective test have um, performed? It was too difficult. So that's why they, they went in the direction they did with a safeguard of the prospective test has for sure got to still be working. Well, that does sound like an incredibly generous uh past but is it as good as it seems to be it is as ever there's there, there is a there's catches in this so if for example your hedge is only 75 percent effective yes you don't have to terminate it because you've gone lower than 80 percent but 25 percent of the movements that ineffectiveness are going to be hitting your income statement so you, you are going to see the impacts of it um and i and i do also think that kind of preparers will need to perhaps refocus on the robustness of their prospective effectiveness test because sometimes dare I say it they get a little bit less love and attention than the retrospective which is kind of based on real numbers that you can see so I think that's something for people to look out for. So so Mark thank you so we've now had four pretty generous reliefs um, but I only counted four there's one more to go so Sandra what's the fifth? Yeah there is indeed one more to go um, this one really applies in the context of hedges of fixed rate debt. So far, we've talked about hedges where the thing you're hedging somehow varies with LIBOR. Um, but think about a hedge of a fixed rate debt. Um, so entity issues fixed rate debt, um, takes out an interest rate swap to swap the, the fixed cash flows into floating. Um, under IFRS, that's a fair value hedge. Um, most companies would designate the hedged risk as changes in fair value attributable to LIBOR. Um, now, to do that, you have to show that the LIBOR component you're hedging is separately identifiable and reliably measurable. And to do that, you look at the market structure. So, you know, what does debt normally price off today, which today would be LIBOR? Now, that's fine, of course, until you look forwards and think, mm. well, at some point, the market isn't going to price off LIBOR, it's going to price off Sonia. Does that mean at that point I no longer have this separately identifiable risk component because the, the market structure has changed? What the reliefs say is that you only have to do that test, that separately identifiable test, when you first designate. So if LIBOR was separately identifiable when you first designated, it was what the market was pricing off, you can stick with LIBOR. There is, as ever, a little sting in the tail you still need your LIBOR component to be reliably measurable. So if you get to the stage where there's just no liquidity you can't reliably measure, then at that point you would have to stop hedge accounting. And actually that's quite sensible because at that point you can't measure any ineffectiveness. And one of the key principles in here is you carry on booking ineffectiveness in the usual way. Excellent. So that's, uh, that's the five reliefs which all sound actually very, very useful. But Mark, as ever with a new standard or with, with, with new standards, we seem to have disclosures uh, rearing, uh, rearing their ugly heads sometimes. What are these new disclosures and, how, and will they be onerous? You're right, it's almost inevitable you're going to get more disclosures with, with, with any change. I wouldn't describe them as onerous actually. And to okay. be fair to 
the ISB, in the exposure draft, they propose a more comprehensive suite of disclosures and then in response to feedback on the comment letter process, they listened and, and scaled back. So I think that that's a good story. In terms of what that leaves you requiring to provide, it's really three things. So firstly, the nominal amount of hedging instruments that are impacted by this relief, which will mean users kind of get a sense of, is it pretty much your entire hedge program that is benefiting from this relief or is it only a few pockets, let's say? Then if there are any significant assumptions or judgments you need to make when applying the release, you need to explain those. From our initial conversations, I'm not sure we see huge amounts of those, but there's always the risk that they emerge. So you need to explain those if they're relevant. And then thirdly, qualitative disclosures, setting out firstly how the entity is impacted by eyeball reform, and then secondly, how it's managing the transition process. And I actually think those are very useful disclosures that the market over time is going to increasingly want to understand anyway, is likely to read bad news into the fact if you're silent on it, kind of, are you not on top of it? To Chris's point earlier, are you perhaps one of the laggards in the, in the, in the third pack? And so actually, even if an entity isn't adopting these reliefs that will come on to they might still want to give these disclosures i think they're a good thing to do excellent so i think what i've heard is we have a set of amendments that are trying to make the transition uh, for these underlying uh, base rates as as simple as possible giving people sensible amounts of relief and uh, reasonable disclosures around them so it does seem to be a bit of a a bit of a win-win the amendments sound like they're very helpful so so uh, sandra when can companies apply them the reliefs are mandatory for accounting periods after 1st of January 2020. However, you can early adopt. And, and given the good news story we've been telling you, I, we actually think many companies will want to early adopt. Obviously, that's subject to any local endorsement requirements. One thing I'll particularly note is that in Europe, um, the EU has kicked off a fast-track endorsement process with a view to having these endorsed in time for 2019 year-ends. If you have a reporting date before then and you're in Europe, you probably can't early adopt. But hopefully for 2019 year-ends, you will be able to. I should just point out the release when they apply are mandatory. They're not optional and you can't pick and choose. So it's an all or nothing. It's all or nothing. Uh, are we seeing everyone choose early adoption where they can? Um, as certainly is our expectation. I, mean, I think a lot of companies obviously are in the process of studying the reliefs and working out what they would do. My personal thought is, yes, I, I think most companies will be well advised to early adopt. The reforms are progressing. It's very hard to say where we'll be at year end or you know, Q1 or H1 next year. But there's always the risk that without these reliefs, you will fail to qualify for hedge accounting. And, and once you've stopped doing hedge accounting, you can't go back retrospectively and reinstate it. So um, my view is you'd be very sensible to early adopt. There's very little downside. Um, Mark mentioned the disclosures. They're not onerous. There's only really upside. Excellent. So uh, so we expect to see these being early adopted. And, and given the that process will take a bit of time and management, Chris, how, how are corporates managing the transition? So I think it depends on the complexity and the nature of their eyeball exposures. So some, for some of the more complex organisations, um, they've, They've allocated uh, responsibilities for looking at the impact of uh, LIBOR uh, and teams have been built to support as, as required. Those organizations tend to have a clear understanding of their exposures through LIBOR and what, what they're going to do about them. Is it simply a repapering exercise or do they need to make more extensive changes to systems and processes and perhaps negotiate arrangements with, with counterparties? 
the challenging part of these plans tends to be identifying those exposures are outside of group treasury mm. where contracts aren't as visible perhaps and i'd say that those organizations that are most advanced in their preparations seem to be ensuring that their plans and the status are effectively communicated to stakeholders so both within the organization and beyond um, i'd also add that they uh, tend to ensure that tax and it and legal are brought along too so in terms of practical actions uh, most most of those that are more advanced are ensuring that any new instruments they're entering into have appropriate fallback arrangements that they understand obviously and mm -hmm. the, the likely consequences of changes and developments in the market and that any plans that they take at the moment do not cause them a basis risk mm -hmm. so for example uh, between a bank loan and derivative contract that's hedging interest rate risk in a bank loan um, and secondly they're ensuring that their systems and processes will be able to handle the features of the new instruments that reference the new uh, reference rates, especially if they see an opportunity to diversify their funding sources. Yeah, and I think from my perspective, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, sometimes I've heard comments, oh, well, this isn't happening for a few years. You know, if I've only got any short-term instruments, I don't need to worry, do I? But when I look at markets, I think they are moving quite fast. So I was looking at some data that ISTA produces comparing volumes of LIBOR swaps to Sonia swaps. And in the year to date, I think they quoted about 7.9 billion of, of LIBOR swaps, about 5.4 of Sonia. So it's increasingly becoming more and more liquid. And these reforms are going to hum, I think, pretty soon now. Yeah. And I guess uh, allied to that, Chris was talking predominantly about the corporate side on the, on the banks and the financial institutions regulators in most jurisdictions have been asking for a period of time now for what kind of what are your plans how are you progressing it they clearly are mindful of the systemic risk that could come from this but also you're starting to hear people say well um, banks are coming under questions from their regulators why are you issuing new products in old LIBOR you're just sort of increasing the historic problem that will be there to be fixed so um, as Sandra says, kind of, well, there's lots to be done still, but the the sense of pressure and drive is really there. Excellent. And um, and how about existing instruments, Chris? Slightly more challenging, I think, especially as organisations seem to be hesitant to touch agreements or hedge accounting until they see what the market does or their their banks offer them. They they're waiting for term reference rates, for example. Yeah, I think um, not. Not that the accounting tail should wag wag the dog, um, but I, I mentioned earlier, sort of phase two of the ISB's project uh, and and possible reliefs or guidance on how to account for contracts when they're actually changed. That's only just started off. So, actually, you should tread tread with caution if you're going to start making changes to contracts and rate. Make sure you're really comfortable how that will get accounted for. You you want to avoid surprises in terms of possible gains or losses that might get crystallised. Is that, is that fair, Chris? I think so. They, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't take any action yet. I think it means that you really do understand, do need to understand the nature of your exposures because there could be opportunities. So, for example, competitive sources of funding or um, lenders insist on you moving to these new arrangements but there could also be risks that you need to start managing now and communicating to the market. Yeah, and it, it strikes me you'd be very sensible to have done some thinking and being prepared because my sense is that 
in a particular jurisdiction, when banks start moving, they'll probably all want to move fairly fast. Um, so it's not one to wait and see for too long, would be my thought. Excellent. OK, I'm afraid we're nearly out of time now. So uh, uh, that's been incredibly helpful. But I just wonder if, uh, for each of you, if there's one key message you would like to leave us with. Starting with you, Sandra. Yeah, I think my key message is this is good news. Um, these are very valuable reliefs. There's very limited downside, if any. So please do study them and really think about early adopting. In, in my view, it's really something to think about seriously. There's, there's good news here, early adopt. Chris? I'd say make sure you've assessed what your exposures are. In particular, don't forget about the exposures outside of Treasury and what risks and opportunities might arise. And Mark? Sounding like a, a, a repeating myself, disclosures, but I think that both disclosures externally in the financial statement, so users are reassured that you understand what the implications are and you've got a plan in, in process, but then also that internal piece. So with audit committees, with tax, with IT, the, 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 this change can have many impacts and what you don't want to do is have a disconnected response internally that means something falls between the cracks. And disclosures can be so important in communicating not only the exposures you might have, but also uh, the, the fact that you've got a process here that's underway. And that, exactly. That, that it can be a source of reassurance. A source of reassurance, actually. And, and there we go. So that's a, a, this, this week's source of reassurance uh, discussion on eyeball reform. I hope that everyone has found that useful. If you want more guidance on technical matters, then please do uh, uh, contact us or look on PwC Inform. Uh, or indeed content on the, on our website pwc.com forward slash IFRS. Uh, I look forward to uh, welcoming you to a, another podcast in another topical issue in a few weeks' time. But in the meantime, happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.